Hi, and welcome to another edition of the podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Who am I? Well, I'm a veteran teacher who has learned a lot over the years and created this little podcast to try and motivate educators. At the time when this show was created, there wasn't a whole lot of options to listen to to get information and, and strategies from successful educators. So I wanted this series to prevent some possible ways for us as educators to improve in the classroom and also to motivate educators out there because a lot of us are pretty discouraged, especially young teachers out there who are just starting their careers. My special guest is Dr. Todd Whitaker. He is a leading motivational speaker. I invite you to listen to this man for some keen insight and possibly gain some motivation as we're all, I think, kind of needing some this time of year. Dr. Whitaker, you have a quote on your website. It says, those who can teach, those who can't go into some much less significant line of work. That quote actually came because my family's background was not education at all. I was the first person to graduate from college and a family, either side of the family in any direction. And my mom completed eighth grade. She's extremely bright, but completed eighth grade. And my dad used to always be sort of cynical and negative about education. And he used to always say those who can do and those who can't teach, which, of course, is a quote we've all heard many times. Oh, yes. Well, I was very fortunate that I actually graduated in business, got in law school, and have some close friends whose parents were in education, and I realized that's what I wanted to do. I assumed everybody in law school was there for the good of the cause. I assumed everyone in law school was for truth, justice, in the American way, but it turned out at least a few of my peers were in law school because they wanted to make $300 an hour with the law firm of Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. That was not what I wanted. I wanted to really make a difference, and so that's when I got into education, and I've just been blessed to have opportunities in a variety of different directions related to that. And I truly do believe that teaching is the single most important profession that there is. Was it an easy start for you at the beginning? I'm probably like everybody else. I I got into education, and I actually moved to a small school that was very different than the schools I had attended. I wanted to also coach, and so I was a varsity basketball coach, and I taught junior high business and was taught uh, high school, um, excuse me, I taught high school business and junior high mathematics, and they also had me be acting counselor, and I was athletic director, and I coached baseball, and I coached track, but I loved being involved with young people. So in a lot of ways, that was probably the best environment I could have been in, one that was almost overwhelming in terms of the opportunities you get. Awesome. Dr. Whitaker, so many other people joined the profession just like you did. They want to make a difference. They enjoy working with young people. But we have so many teachers who entered the career and then five years or less, most of them quit. What do you see as the problem? I think statistically, the more you look at the statistics, there's no question that sometimes it's things going on in the classrooms. But one of the things we know, a large majority of educators are female. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, one of the things we see statistically, it is that people get married, they want to have children, they stay at home. And those go into the same category as a teacher who quit because they were burnt out because of student misbehavior. I do think that the biggest disadvantage people have is if they've never worked with anyone great. If a person has student taught with an exceptional teacher, the likelihood of them being effective themselves is exponentially higher. And the reason's pretty simple. It's because they know one way that works. The challenge with people who get frustrated isn't that they don't know three ways that work. The challenge with people who get frustrated is oftentimes they don't know one way that works. Because if they knew how to do something, they would do it. Think about this. In any classroom in the world, 
every teacher does the best they know how at student management. Because if any teacher could get the students to behave better, whether that be the best teacher or one that's struggling it a little bit, every teacher would get the students to behave better. So I think a lot of it is so often in education, we're on our own to figure it out. Very true. If central office does not have great leadership, the principals in the schools are on their own to figure it out. Now, some of the principals do figure it out. Some of the school districts do have exceptional central office leadership, but a tremendous amount don't. Then if a school does not have a great principal, the teachers are on their own to figure it out. Some of the teachers do figure it out. Some of the teachers do have exceptional leaders. However, a lot of them don't. Then in the classrooms, if there isn't an exceptional teacher, many times the students are on their own to figure it out. And as you know from all of us having gone through school, we've worked with some kids. We've had kids in our own classes that were our peers when we went through school that had the ability to figure almost anything out. But we also knew there was a large number of students who didn't have that ability. So I think that opportunity to work with greatness is, in my mind, one of the single biggest determinants of effectiveness and success of people. And that leads into what I want to talk about with your national bestseller, what great teachers do differently. Obviously, some teachers do rise above the occasion and become great teachers. What are some of the things that you have studied that effective teachers are doing differently? One of the things great teachers do differently and great educators understand it's people, it's not programs. They understand no matter what the new trend comes in, it's really going to be the effectiveness of an individual classroom teacher. I always think of the example, one example is looping. Looping's a great program. Looping is where the same teacher has the students more than one year in a row and they loop up with the students. Well, in a truly great teacher's classroom, the likelihood of looping working is 100%. Everybody wants their kids to have a great teacher for two years. But in an ineffective classroom, the likelihood of looping working is 0% because nobody wants their child having ineffective teachers for two days, much less two years. And great teachers really do accept that responsibility. They know it's up to them. In a great teacher's classroom, if they give a quiz or a test or a homework assignment and the students don't, aren't as successful as that teacher wishes they would be, ineffective teachers, when they give a quiz or a test or a homework assignment and the kids do poorly on it, and the kids doing poorly happens to all of us, the difference is the reaction to the students doing poorly. The poor teachers blame last year's teachers. They blame the principal. They blame hip-hop music. They blame society today. They blame cable TV. They blame the divorce rate. And I think there's a real difference in terms of that willingness to accept responsibility. Great principals also are the same way. Great principals, if you ask them who's responsible for the climate of their school, they say it's them. If you have poor principals, who's responsible for the climate of your school? The poor principals say the teachers are, we all are, we're a family, somebody else besides them. One other difference that's very clear is the understanding with the exceptional teachers that it's 10 days out of 10, that it's every single day they treat every single student with respect and dignity 10 days out of 10. It's not just at the start of the year. It's not just with the teacher pleaser kids who read above grade level. It's not just with the kids who don't have acne. It's with every student every day in their class. It's not based on my mood. It's based on what's right. Less effective people, their classroom, the way they treat the kids is much more dependent on how their life's going, how things are going. If it's April, they may be more worn out and not quite as patient as they were in September when everybody was excited about the start of the school year. And the great teachers really have an ability to make it 10 days out of 10. They treat 
every student with respect and dignity every single day. That's a gifted teacher, but that's exactly the type of teacher every student deserves. Would you say that also would help your classroom management skills if you adopt that principle of respect? Oh, there's no question whatsoever. There's three things great teachers never do. They never argue and realize with a challenging student, you're never going to win an argument anyhow. The reason the student can't lose is because their peers are watching. Mm-hmm. We never argue. Great teachers never yell. Those things just accelerate misbehavior in a classroom. And great teachers also never use sarcasm. And sarcasm is defined as humiliating someone in front of their peers under the guise of humor. Great teachers never do those things. Thus, there aren't the immediate challenges and roadblocks set up that if we take on a student, if we yell at a student, what happens isn't even what happens to that student. It's that all the other students get on the side of the student who's most likely to challenge the teacher then. Oh, yes. And that's the real cause. All of a sudden what happens is it isn't one-on-one. It becomes one-on-25, and there's no teacher that's going to win that. So how do you win if you're applying that principle of respect and you still got, let's say, Johnny who's misbehaving and he's the class clown? What are some positive specifics that we can do if we want to apply that principle of respect? Well, you know what's funny? Good or bad, I was not a particularly good student in school, and I was that person who was, I was the ultimate classroom lawyer, which just makes teachers vomit when they get students like me. But you know what's interesting? In a truly great teacher's classroom, when they treated everyone with respect, whether I liked that teacher or not, it wasn't cool to goof around in there. Before that class starts, all the other kids are going, hey, idiot, knock it off. And you know what's weird? I'd knock it off. But in a teacher that was not respected, I was the hero in that classroom. Well, now those are two far-reaching engines. The very best teachers, it wasn't cool to goof around. The very worst teachers, you're a hero to goof around and take that teacher on. Well, everybody else is somewhere in between also. And it wasn't just based on how that teacher treated me. It was how they treated everyone. Thus, that would determine whether or not it was cool to goof around and give that teacher trouble or not. And that may seem very simplistic, but that applies at every level in every program that there is. Same thing applies in college classrooms, much less preschool classrooms. Interesting. So great teachers, they have the ability not to blame others, but to internalize things and say, how can I improve? They also have that ability to be respectful to their students. What else do you, have you seen that great teachers do differently, Dr.? Well, one thing that's interesting when you just mentioned classroom management, one thing that's very clear, and I've never even written about this in any of my books, one thing that's very clear is one of the biggest differences between great managers and all the others is when great classroom managers say something, regardless of how big or small they are, regardless of how loud or quiet their voices are, the difference is when they say something, they mean it. You can have the most petite, little, gentle, dainty, elderly female teacher, and she has the ability to say, now, Tim, I would encourage you to stop talking. And Tim stops talking because he knows the teacher means it. But what's funny is a teacher cannot get the students to believe they mean it until the teacher themselves means it. And I think it's also just there's a confidence issue. And realize when the teacher says, no, we need to stop talking, the great teachers are not adding an R else. An R else actually takes the pressure off of the people. If you tell me, Todd, we need to stop talking, or else you may have to serve a detention I'm immediately weighing that. I'm weighing it going, let me think. If I can get this girl to like me by me taking this teacher on and it only costs me a detention, 
that's worth it. And it's really funny, in a great teacher's classroom, they never do the or else. And that unknown is much scarier than the known itself. I agree, yeah. Definitely leaves something to the imagination there. Is there ever a time that teachers are allowed to be strict? I'm not sure the word strict. There's no question. Great teachers are intentional. Everything they do, they have an intentionalist on how they greet the students. They immediately begin tasks. And begin tasks does not mean I take out a whip. Begin tasks may mean, let's turn to page 16. Everybody has three modes. We have a business mode, we have a parent mode, and we have a child mode. As a teacher, the mode we are in as a teacher will determine the mode that the students are in. If a teacher's in their business mode, the students are in their business mode. The great teachers sort of get down to work, if that makes any sense or not. The kids come in, there's not wasted time, there's not downtime. Immediately, they become task-focused. And they can do it pleasantly. You know, they can do it with a smile. We can do it in a friendly face. We're just saying, okay, let's get started. If a teacher goes into their parent mode, and yelling is considered a parent mode most of the time, the students go into their child mode. It does not help my class to have all 25 kids go into a child mode because it's going to be a lot of effort to get them back out. And if a teacher goes into their child mode, the kids all go into either their child mode or their parent mode. Sometimes that's fun. Great teachers are not necessarily funny, but they're all fun. They all have a sense of humor. But we have to understand as a teacher, it's important that we know when to utilize that and when not to utilize that. One of the classes I taught was a class with freshmen, and it was a class that was a remedial-type class for freshmen, and I was blessed and had 36 kids in that classroom. I love to do interactive group work with kids. I love it. You know what? Those kids could not handle it. And so what I would do is I would always start off with a structured approach to class. Okay, today what we're going to do is let's all turn to page 61, and I would start introducing the lesson we were doing. Once I got them settled in for the day, I could say, okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to break down into groups, and I would literally pull the screen up on the board and have the groups all laid out for the kids that they were going to be into. And I'd say, let's quietly move into our groups. They would process in groups for 10 or 15 minutes. But if I noticed that they started to be able to not handle that, they weren't bad kids. There were just a lot of them, and they kind of played off each other, and it was a pretty male-dominated class. And as soon as they started to lose that, I would go, okay, now let's go back to our rows, and let's begin doing the next task because of the fact I couldn't win in them in an unstructured situation for a long period of time a lot of times with the kids. They weren't bad. It just wasn't going to work. But if I hadn't started them off every day in a business mode, there's no way I could have ever got them even into that kind of a work-type pattern for them to be successful. And that's a lot of classroom management problems come from not having that work mode of too much downtime for the kids to goof off and, and play around. And I like how you said when you would do the group work, you would try to be specific and not just say, okay, get in your groups. I think some teachers need to model those expectations, and if it doesn't work, make a shift. And when it didn't work, I wouldn't yell at them to get back. I wouldn't threaten them. I wouldn't say, because you're not paying attention. Instead, I'd act like great teachers have an intentionalness behind everything they do. They pretend stuff happens randomly all the time, but in a great teacher's classroom, nothing ever happens randomly. I would never tell them in advance you're going to have 25 minutes in your group. You know why? Because there's a chance they couldn't handle 25 minutes in their group. Very true. And I didn't want it to be a matter of then they're going, wait a minute, why are you doing this? And I'm going, because you were bad. That's not going to help with dynamics like that. You mentioned parent mode, and one of your books was dealing with difficult parents, and this is something that a lot of teachers struggle with. 
What are some ways that the effective teacher deals with difficult parents? The more effective you are, the less you have to deal with difficult parents. That doesn't mean it never happens, but I promise you this, the ratio of difficult parents is directly related to the ratio of difficult teachers within a school. I agree. It's amazing how seldom difficult parents come in and rant and rave to the best teacher in the school. That doesn't mean it never happens, but it's amazing how seldom that happens. It's sort of like if you think about this within any school, do you think the teachers in general would be willing to bet me money which teacher in their school will send the most students to the office three years from now? Did you know almost every teacher will be willing to bet money on that? Because who's the variable? The teacher, it doesn't depend who's on their class roster. It depends on how we interact. What's interesting is, did you know almost any teacher would be willing to bet money which teacher will have the most parental complaints this year? That doesn't mean I'm not making light of dealing with difficult parents. That's a challenge. I didn't write the book because it isn't a challenge. But the first thing when we deal with difficult people is we have to make sure we're not one. And how do we go about doing that? Well, it's the same way in terms of treating people with respect and dignity. I think the other thing is the phone is our best friend unless it's ringing. If we have an issue with the student behavior, the best thing we can do is call the parent early and ask for their assistance. My first phone call to you is not going to be bad news in terms of your son's in trouble. Your son has not brought a pencil for nine days in a row. Your son now has an F in class. Because you know what? There's a chance there's nothing we can do at that point except react negatively to it. Instead, if I call and say, hi, Mrs. Smith, this is Todd Whitaker. I'm Jim's math teacher, and I was wondering if I could get your help with something. Do you see the different approach there? And I say, he has not brought a pencil to class four times, or he has not brought his homework these last two days, or he has been talking a lot in class, and I don't want him to fall behind in his work. You know what's weird? The parent doesn't want that either. And I do not want to get the office involved. You know what? The parent does not want that either. So I wondered if I could get your help with something. Here's what I needed. Could you please visit with him tonight about his homework? For example, today we have it page 71, and he has 11 problems that are the odd problems, and I think he has that written down. Would you mind just visiting with him tonight? Make sure he has his book. Make sure he has his homework and paper and work with him on that. Typically what I do is every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday we have a homework assignment and, you know, where I'm getting them on my side before I need them to be on my side. Instead, we think they're difficult parents because we haven't made any communication. The end of the semester, the end of the grade period comes along, the kid has a D minus, and it's typically a B student, and that parent is shocked. And I don't want to let the parent off the hook. I want to keep them in the informational loop, and I also want to ask for their assistance. Now, if they're saying there's nothing I can do, it's amazing how much then that parent does not come back and haunt you related to the fact that they got a D minus because you've already talked to them three different times. And so I think it's important to keep them and give them responsibility also. Well, you know what's funny? It isn't even the principal making it. As a teacher, if at all possible, if I'd like to call a parent, I want to call the parent before the student even gets home. Correct. Because if the student gets home first, there's a chance the parent's never going to completely believe me. It takes eight times longer to unlearn something than it does learn something. And if that student beats me home first and shares their side of the story, which coincidentally they always will, there's a lower likelihood of the parent believing my story than if I can beat that student home first, if I can initiate a phone call immediately. Now, your listeners may feel like, well, I can't always do that. And you know what? I know they can't. But there's times you can do that. I always want to deal with difficult people when I'm ready, not when they're ready. 
Because I have learned if we deal with difficult people when they're ready, you know, like if we wait for them to initiate contact with us, they will only contact us when they are at their peak of ready. And if I initiate contact with them, they will not be at their peak of ready yet. And the reason I know they won't is because they haven't called yet. They're still building to that. And so it really is important to understand that phone really is our best friend, but not if it's ringing. And so I want to initiate that contact. I want to make sure the parent knows what's going on. I want to ask that parent for help. Also with parents, I love to have positive communication before I might have negative communication. I always want to build a relationship before I need a relationship. Very true. And you also wrote another book, What Great Principles Do Differently. What are some effective things that you've seen that principals do that really create or bring success to their schools and to their teachers? My reviews on Amazon.com, and some are good and some are bad, and some are truthful and some are not, and I'm hoping it's the good ones that are truthful, but regardless. One of the things somebody wrote was, I bought his book, What Great Teachers Do Differently, and I bought his book, What Great Principles Do Differently, and there's a lot of overlap in that. And my response is, I'm hoping there is. I'm hoping what makes a great principal is what makes a great teacher. Otherwise, what are we going to do, hire our crummy teachers to be principals? It's the exact same skill set. The difference is the teachers teach the students and the principals teach the teachers. They do not tell the teachers. They teach the teachers. They teach them better ways to do things. They provide them opportunities to get in each other's classrooms. They treat the students with respect and dignity every day, and they treat the teachers with respect and dignity every single day. One thing we clearly know is great principals have faculty meetings teachers look forward to and value. Many principals do not even know that's possible. And the reason they don't know it's possible, they've never worked with a great principal. See, if I've ever worked with a great principal, I know what faculty meetings can be like, and I know one way to help them be that way. But if I've never worked with a great principal, when I was a teacher, faculty meetings may have kind of been a joke. And when I became an assistant principal, faculty meetings may not have been valued. So when I became a principal, I might think that's the way it's supposed to be. I'm in a principal preparation program, and when we get truly great teachers coming in, you know we have a lot of average people coming in, but when we get truly great teachers coming in, the first thing I have to help them understand is it's the same skill set. The reason sometimes great teachers think to be a principal it's a different skill set, it's because their principal is just average, and they have a different skill set than the great teacher does. But in actuality, it's the exact same skill set to be great as a teacher that it takes to be great as a principal. And the reason we have average principals is many times it's because they were average teachers, and they just don't have the same skill set that's needed to be exceptional. And I think we see a lot of teachers being defensive against principals because some principals have that mindset of, I'm going to get you. I'm going to do a classroom observation and point out all the stuff that you're doing wrong. What should the more effective principal be doing when he he or she goes into the classroom for an observation? Great principals are in classrooms every day. The nice thing is if I'm in classrooms on a regular basis, there's no gotcha. We don't have any warts. You and I both know the difference between right and wrong. What's interesting is that that makes it easy for a great teacher because if I only come in your class one time a year, you're really hoping nothing unusual happens because class goes great all the time. What if I'm only there one time and Jimmy Tucker acts up? I'm horrified because you don't know that normally nobody acts up in my classroom. Right. But if you're there on a regular basis, if two or three times a week you're in my classroom, you know what I am as a teacher one way or the other. There's also no gotcha then. 
think about this. If I'm a principal and I'm in classrooms regularly and I stroke the teachers, I talk to them about instruction, I ask them, tell me a little bit about how you're going to assess that. But I'm not writing that down. There's no gotcha there. I'm going, boy, it sure was cool when you did this. Or how do you assess this? Is there any way I could come back when the kids present their projects? If I in classrooms on a regular basis, the great teachers love it and the poor teachers are uncomfortable. But if I'm never in classrooms, the poor teachers love it and the great teachers are uncomfortable. If a principal does not set foot in a room, in a teacher's room the entire year, at the end of the year, the great teacher is insulted and the poor teacher is giddy. And so we have to be there on a regular basis to be supportive. But what happens is the gotcha principals, they don't even go in classrooms. They just do it once a year. You talk about recruiting teachers in one of your books. What do you as an administrator look for when someone sits down for an interview? What specific things are you looking for that say to you, you this might be someone that I can have them join my team and be successful? Again, I'm looking for truly greatness. I don't want to hire average because I don't want my kids having average. I want my kids having great. I can give you a couple quick examples. One of them is, one of the things when I call references, the most typical question is, would you hire them again? Nothing wrong with that question, but you know what? I don't know if you're great based on would you hire them again. Typically, people say yes to three-fourths of the people they have. Do you see how I need to ask questions of potential references that would differentiate? So I'd say, would you hire that person again? If they say yes, I say, great. I go, if you went to a new school, would you hire them again? Well, that's a little different. They'll still say yes. I go, would you recruit them? And if they say yes, I go, how many teachers do you have? Let's say you have 50 teachers. I go, how many of those 50 teachers would you recruit? If you say seven, do you see how I begin to see a much better than average teacher? Then when you say seven, I say, of those seven you would recruit, where do they fall? Why aren't they first? Why are they fifth? What does the fourth one have? And I'm very nice. It's, it's not the Spanish Inquisition. I'm very nice. But I've got to find out if you're great because that's what the students in a school deserve. Then the, the other questions that I would ask you in an interview, I have to ask you questions that differentiate. There's no reason to ask you questions that everybody's going to answer the same. There's nothing wrong with softball questions. There's nothing wrong with saying, tell me your philosophy of education. The problem is everybody's answers seem the same. But I might ask you that question first, just so you feel comfortable. Great. No teacher's going to say, my philosophy is I warn the kids once and slam them against the wall. But do you know what? There's some teachers that that is their philosophy. The best questions you can ask a teacher are real-life situational questions. For example, one of my favorite questions is, say it's the first week of school. You may or may not know the students' names yet. You're teaching class the first week of school, and a student sitting in the middle of the room is talking. What would you do? Did you know that one answer will automatically eliminate 75% of the people? And then no matter what you say, you know what I ask? A few minutes later, you're still teaching, and the student starts talking again. What would you do? And a few minutes later, you're still teaching, and the student starts talking again. What would you do? And a few minutes later, you know what? That's a real-life situational question, isn't it? You know what? I'd better know the answer before I hire you. And that great teacher, no matter what their answer is, it will always involve, I'll never draw attention to that student. Whenever I'm teaching, I'm up and I'm around. I would potentially try to use, eventually use proximity with that student. I might try to make eye contact. I might try to redirect that student. I might, a whole bunch of different things. But it's understanding their entire goal is to de-escalate versus escalate. Great teachers want prevention. 
poor teachers want revenge. When a kid misbehaves in a great teacher's classroom, they want it to never happen again. When a kid misbehaves in a poor teacher's classroom, they want a public bloodletting. And wrapping it up here, Dr. Whitaker, is there anything from your own experiences you can say to kind of encourage these teachers? A friend of mine uh, who's a former teacher of mine, I'm very blessed. I have a lot of teachers of mine and even a lot of students who have now become principals. And it's really kind of fun to keep in contact with them. Some of them are superintendents. And I think a lot of their theory was if I could do it, pretty much anybody could do it. But one of them called me last year toward the end of the year and said, my students are acting like the school year is already over. What can I do so that they stop acting like the school year is already over? The principal asked me. And I go, well, the first thing you could do is make sure none of the teachers are acting like the school year is already over. The same way we get in our business mode, I think it's important that we stay in our business mode, that we continue to have tests, that we continue to have assignments, that we do not collect the books three weeks in advance, that we do not have a thing on the board that says 37 more days of school left. Yes. And it's really difficult for teachers because if other teachers do it, the kids are already hyper aware. But I think we continue in that mode. And it's so important. And the reason to do it is just for you. If the kids can stay in that business mode, oh, it lets you have so much more opportunity to continue to teach and, and not get that frustration of how can I get through these last three weeks type deal. Well, we definitely appreciate your efforts and getting the word out there and motivating teachers because we certainly could use it. And if you're interested in any of the number of books that Dr. Whitaker has written, you can go to toddwhitaker.com, correct? That's exactly right. And my email address is on there and phone number. If anybody ever wants to email me, share their ideas, ask questions or thoughts, I love hearing from people. And I, you know, I get about 100, and 100 plus emails every single day, but I try to respond to every one of them. And I just love the opportunity to interact with talented educators, and there's so many of them. Mm-hmm.